Hi, and welcome to Congregation. I'm Emma Prestwich. My day job is as an editor at HuffPost Canada. But here, I want to find out more about faith and figuring out where you belong. Being Catholic and all that comes with it, like the devotion and specific rituals, is super important to millions of people around the world. And despite what you might think, young people are into it too, just not a ton of them in North America. Jean Codin is one of those rare people, a 27-year-old devout Catholic. And she's an old soul. She works as the youth editor at the Catholic Register, a newspaper based in Toronto. She grew up going to a church north of the city. She's pretty secure in her belief in God and Jesus as her savior, but spends a lot of time trying to understand why her church preaches the things that it does. So wondering if I could ask you a little bit, I guess, about your own faith. I know that a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s might say that they're Catholic, but it may be because their family was or they grew up that way. Maybe they were baptized or maybe even confirmed in the church. They don't really believe the religious stuff. So i uh, wondering if I can ask you whether that's the case for you. Yeah, that was the case for me, especially in my earlier teenage years, I was just Catholic by label, I guess. Um, It's not that I wasn't practicing. I grew up in the Catholic church, but I think I made it more my own later in my teen years. I think maybe like 17, 18 or something. I decided I I could finally identify with the faith and I practiced it more purposefully. What would you say is your faith? What would you say you believe? I believe that there is a God um, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus came down to save all of us from our sin and to teach us what love looks like. And he taught us basically everything we really need to know to be in relationship with him, because I think that's the goal. To be in relationship with Jesus. To be in relationship with Jesus, to be in relationship with God. Yeah. That was really succinct. Oh, okay, I, good. <laughs> I wish I could be, I wish I could sum up what I believe that succinctly. So as you got older, you said that when you were a teenager, you started to claim the faith as your own and mm-hmm. be involved consciously. Mm-hmm. I think that's the case. Yeah. You chose to be there. You said, this is my faith. I'm owning this. I believe this. Was there ever a point, I know you went to university, we went to the same school at Ryerson, was there ever a point as a young adult where you questioned any of those things? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I question it now. There's so much rich history and there's so much tradition to learn about. There's so much theology behind everything that we do in church and in our prayers and in our traditions. So yeah, there's a lot that still I can't wrap my head around and there's still a lot that maybe I haven't even touched or came to encounter in my everyday devotion. So yeah, I mean, I I feel like Pope Francis said it best when he said that doubt is the key to a life of faith. As faithful as I can try to be, there's going to be some sort of doubt, but it's a matter of how you wrestle with that doubt. 
and how you, I guess, offer it up to God, really, and let him fill in those spaces in his own time. Hmm. Is there anything in particular that you're wrestling with right now that's giving you pause? Anything about your own faith or? Uh, well, because right now, I guess the big news in the Canadian Catholic Church right now is that the relic of St. Francis Xavier, um, his right arm, the relic of his right arm is touring Canada and it's gotten quite a lot of attention even in mainstream media, secular media. And just even like just seeing pictures of the arm is like, oh, it's so gross. <laughs> but um, the, the theology behind it is like super, I'm super behind it. But just kind of confront, being confronted with like a skeletal looking arm and um, seeing people's like fervent devotion to it is just, it's, it takes it takes you back a little bit. So you don't think you could go to one of these churches where it is and go up and sort of spend a moment with it or worship it? No, I think I could. And and it's not really worship. We call it venerating the relic. And it's different in a sense. Well, yeah, it's very different because uh, venerating a relic means that we're asking the saint for intercession, which means we're asking them to pray for us or put in a good word essentially to God. It's like, hey, can you help me out with um, this thing I'm struggling with? So when you're venerating a relic, you're basically, yeah, it's just a physical connection to asking the saint for their prayers for us kind of thing. So it's a physical connection to a spiritual being who is the saint, is Saint Francis Xavier. Yeah who is in the communion of saints, uh, who is in heaven in communion with God already. And the way that um, the veneration of saints, um, the way it was explained to me was that Father Mike Schmitz from Ascension Presents, it's a YouTube channel, (laughs) um, he explains it in this way, which I thought was really cool and it really clicked to me. He used the analogy of a marathon. And basically everyone in humanity is running this race and basically the finish line is heaven. What we believe and we've is that when we die and we've lived a holy life, we become in communion with God. We're in union with God. The way that he used it was that all the people that ran the marathon and finished early or finished before you would be in the crowd and basically what they're doing is cheering everyone else on who's still running the race. And that's how it was explained to me. That's what the communion of saints is essentially doing. They're there. They're finished their life on earth. Um, now they're in union with God and they're helping us get to heaven as well. And the relics and the miracles behind these relics are just a physical evidence that God has chosen this person at some point in history and work through them. And these miracles are just a way of God signaling to us that this is a role model of the type of holiness that I'm calling for you to have. That's kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like that way of thinking about it better than all of these people sitting up in the sky judging our actions. This idea that all of these 
saints you're talking about, people who've been sainted, are up here trying to encourage you to live the best life that you can while you're on the earth. Yeah, and a lot of them have left their own writings and um, that give us an example of what their devotion looks like and how they understand the faith and how they understand God. And those are all things that we can use to apply to our life and help us with our own struggles with doubt and faith. Um, yeah, but looking at it from a distance, I think, um, especially with St. Francis Xavier's arm, it still looks, <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing to do. It's like a really old arm. Yeah. <laughs> like he, how old is it exactly? He died in 1552, I think I read. Wow, okay. And yeah, so the fact that it's still intact and you see this the bones and the 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 skeleton of it is the miracle. Yeah, very much yeah. so. But it must be preserved somehow, is it not? Like there must be like some sort of complex thing that they use to dot to, so it all stays intact, right? Uh I don't know. Um, it's in a glass case, so I, no one can directly touch it. But even then, to have it last, what, almost 500, maybe 400 years? No, that's not wrong. I mean, that's not right. 500 years, right? Yeah. About 500 years. So you said you have some doubts all the time about different things. And that's, I guess, what faith is, is that oftentimes we don't really know a lot of this stuff, literally. Like God did not walk up to you or I one day and as a person and say, hey, I would like you to do this. So it's hard. I guess what I'm wondering is, are you ever, do people challenge you on the articles of your faith ever? Because it's, it's kind of amazing to me that you, you do seem pretty certain of what you believe. You seem really certain of your faith in God. Um, and of the resurrection of Jesus. And do people ever challenge you on that? Or, Yeah, sure. All the time, I feel like, especially in something like a, a campus setting where you meet people of different faiths and you share sort of your life experience. Yeah, I think that's why I have such a strong desire to consume a lot of like apologetics or like watch YouTube videos about random things like the communion of saints, because I want it to make sense in my head before someone asks me about it. And sorry, what is apologetics? Apologetics is, I guess, a branch or a discipline of theology. Theology is the study of God and the nature of divinity. Um, but yeah, it's a branch of theology that basically defends the faith. Okay. Yeah. So you need some more explanation for these yeah. things in order to yeah in order to make sense of them yeah and I think I remember one conversation I had in college oh college university Ryerson <laughs> where um, a friend of mine also in journalism school who was um, I, f I forget what type of Christian denomination she was but she was on the Protestant sect and um, she asked me why Oh, why we as Catholics call our priests fathers. Um, different other church denominations call them reverend or pastor, or things like that. And she asked me about a specific Bible passage where the passage was something along the lines of God saying that 
you shall not call anyone else but me father or something like that. And I, I thought about it and it was just because I grew up in the Catholic church. It was just so, like a title. It was this title as much as you would call your aunt, auntie, this person. So I never really thought about it. And I said, I don't know. Can I, can I check in with you? And I, let me ask them. <laughs> and the way that the priest explained it to me was that, um, priests are, um, their basic function is to be, um, like shepherds, like Jesus, shepherds to a flock, um, to Jesus's flock. And the, title father or the honorific father is just a way of acknowledging that they're sort of a spiritual father to Jesus's flock. And that just means that, yeah, they're basically there to serve the community. And he also talked about how certain parts of the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. And that's why you need quite a lot of study and discernment when you're reading the Bible. Um, because yeah, things like those passages, um, how do you make sense of that passage or when Jesus says certain thing, how do you make sense of that in today's faith, uh, today's, uh, society and things like that. And then he, I think at the end of the conversation, he had, he had stuff, he said stuff like, uh, God is not offended if I call my biological father, father in the same way. I don't think that's what he literally meant, like, only call me father. Um, I think it's more in along the lines of not putting anything above God. Mm. So, so you could call God mother as well. It's just that this is the way. Could you call God mother? Would that be a, would that in the Catholic tradition or the way your priest explained it? Would that be an acceptable thing? Um, God doesn't have a gender, so I don't think God would be offended if, uh, <laughs> we called him mother, but we do have a mother in mother Mary. Mm. Um, but what, um, I read somewhere was that we call God the father, the father is because that's how Jesus revealed him to us. Jesus himself called him father. So who are we as like? mere mortals I guess to question that (laughs) I guess I might question that then and wonder if based on the time period that the people writing the gospels which tell the story of Jesus life the time period they were writing in if they and I don't know this is my own interpretation of it maybe they interpreted what Jesus was saying when he talked about God as male because men had a sort of dominant role in the time that Jesus was alive, which was, you know, uh, from what we know, 2000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was also purposeful in a way that even now, I think just in how, how Jesus defines his relationship with God. So if we are to live a Christ-like life, or if he's supposed He's the example that we all aspire to be as Christians. Then his relationship with God is essentially what we need to imitate. In terms of like putting a gender on God, um, whether father or mother, I don't know. I, I, I like father because it has, for me, that image of the disciplinarian, but also the protector and 
you look to your dad when you need guidance and when you have a question or something like that. A mother is a different image. And I guess because I grew up in the Catholic faith, I associate that more with Mother Mary, Jesus's mother, and um, her nurturing, I guess, spirit and her wisdom. That's so interesting because I guess in my upbringing, my mother was that person. My mother was the disciplinarian. She was the one who was who sort of ran the roost, I guess, in my family. So when I say, when I say prayers in church that start with mother, that's the image that it evokes for me. So. Yeah. And uh, well, there's an interesting thing as well. And maybe it's all about balance between the two genders because the church is referred to in the, in the feminine, like it's a her. So um, when, priests are ordained they're married to the church and it's sort of that duality and that's also I guess the duality between the father and the church and the feminine interesting it seems like you're very much still a a scholar you're still trying to figure you're still trying to read more catholic writings and your faith is still evolving yeah and I feel like even with my group of quote unquote church friends, the reason why we're so curious about the apologetics of our faith is because we're trying to make it relevant to our daily life. I mean, something that, yeah, something that was written, written down thousands of years ago, how does that still feel relevant and how does that still work in my life in 21st century society? My memory card ran out of space here, so part of the interview got cut off. Maybe it was divine intervention. (laughs) Maybe it was. It's like, you need a moment to pause. Yeah. I don't think I ever really answered your question, though, because I was still kind of searching for it. I guess I asked whether you and your church friends are all on the same page, I guess, about your religious beliefs or whether there's a variety of perspectives. Yeah, there's definitely a variety of perspectives. I mean... Yeah, because we're all so different and we come from different backgrounds. Like, for example, I have a lot of friends who are nurses and they deal a lot with life and death situations. So so they tell me about how basically their day is like and how the, does that affect their kind of perspective on what the Catholic Church teaches about life and death. And how does it affect their like their work experience, how does that inform their faith? Well, right now, their concerns that we're all kind of trying to figure out is um, the the assisted dying laws and how does that protect the dignity of a person? So because a lot of my friends are in jobs where they are, they have a lot of patients who are close to dying or are quite weak and they're basically their jobs as nurses is to make them feel comfortable, give them the right medicine and really take care of them. They're really struggling with um, what that means to have these new laws that help these patients die on their own time. And what the Catholic church teaches is that, you know, life is sacred and, Um, We have to let it take its natural course and to have something like medicine or something else that would intervene with that natural course 
it teaches us that it's wrong and it's not protecting the dignity of someone because we're intervening with God's plan essentially for their life and taking their life into our own hands. And I think we're just, and because they see it every day of like these patients that are suffering all the time, you you question what is God's plan for this man who's um, basically on his deathbed and um, he he's too weak to walk around or to even speak. How do we help him die with dignity, whether it's through its natural course or if, and what do we do when we co- we're confronted with, I want to die, I want to take this into my own hands and I want to die now. So these are the things that it's hard to confront, especially for my friends who are seeing it every day. So have they come to a conclusion on what they believe about it or are they still wrestling with this issue? They're still wrestling with the issue. I feel like they understand and they embrace what the church teaches about it. I don't know. I'm not sure, really. I don't know if they've like resolved it within themselves or maybe it's still something we're all kind of still struggling with together. Hmm. Would you say you've come to a conclusion on it? or? Yeah, I, I think so. For me right now, I guess... I agree that life is sacred and that it should take its natural course. It feels like if I were to ask someone to help me die, it would be my way of taking my life into my own hands and maybe messing with what God's will for me is in the end years of my life. I mean, Pope John Paul II kind of was a really good example of what it means to be in your in your fragile late years but still have something to offer and who knows maybe I have something more to offer even in a weak bedridden state yeah I don't know even if you're in a lot of pain which someone could potentially be uh well I haven't covered this issue in my work the way that like my more senior writers who know what they're talking about do it. But uh, from my own experience in writing sort of supplemental stories about this issue, a lot of doctors and um, healthcare physicians in the palliative care field really feel that managing pain is possible and they don't have to be uncomfortable even at the latest sort of days of their life. So it is possible to manage their pain and to make them feel comfortable and still maintain their dignity. It's just a matter of the kind of comprehensive care that they're able to receive or they have access to. It's so interesting hearing you talk about the fact that you have a group of friends in your church that you can discuss this with and... I'm guessing these are all younger people around your age since you were in youth group together. And that's awesome that you can talk about things like this. When I think of the Catholic Church, when a lot of people think of the Catholic Church, they don't think of women who were 26, 27. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas on, just from your own experience, why there aren't a ton of young people involved. Yeah, I mean... I even read 
today I read a story about how the study just came out um, covered by Crux, this online Catholic publication, um, was talking about how young people are leaving the church in troves and more than any other religion in history. And oh, so a, a bishop said this. We're at a Galileo moment where the church is now faced with the challenge of figuring out how they're going to relate to this new generation of people that don't feel like their faith is relevant to them anymore. Knowing that young people are leaving the church in droves, is there anything in your own church that you think it could do better to bring people in, young people in? Yeah, I think not even just in my own church, but in the church in general, there's such a power in personal invitation. And I feel like that's where maybe we're lacking because I joined the youth group because a friend of mine from school said, hey, you sh- we, we sing on Sunday mass. If you don't want to go to the church children's choir anymore, come to us. By the time I joined the youth group, it was like point of no return because like, oh, look at all these new friends I have. And as I, be- as I became more part of the church, then that's when i made my faith my own. So the power of an invitation is a really powerful thing. And I think if we want to keep the young people, keep us young people, I think we need a more personal invitation or we want a a church that feels more open to what we have to say and what we want to talk about and how we want to relate to our faith, whatever that might be, what we struggle with, I don't know. I've wondered, Catholicism is a very old religion in the sense that traditions and rituals are very important. And for, I'm sure, on some level for you and for many others, that is important to the faith. I'm wondering if oftentimes I go into a Catholic church and it's beautiful. Like there's some examples that are more stunning than others, obviously. But, you know, these beautiful... uh, tapestries you know that it's so gorgeous inside the stained glass stained glass I I wonder sometimes if and maybe this is cliche maybe I'm dating myself as a young person but like maybe the sort of old sort of world vibe of it I wonder if that's off-putting to young people I don't know um, and I mean, I sound like I'm speaking for all young people too, but sort <laughs> yeah. of the the sense of it being so, does that make any sense what I'm saying? Yeah, because it's so, a lot of our traditions really harken back, way back. I think it feels for a lot of young people or for a lot of even friends of mine, it feels like, oh, it was not, it's not for me. It was quote unquote invented at a different time that doesn't feel like what my life experiences now. But once I understood why we kept those traditions and what those traditions represent, it really enriches the experience. But yeah, there's that gap of, do I understand what this is for? And is this part of who I want to be? Or is this part of what I want my life experience to be? So yeah, once you once you know that things like cathedrals and like these towering steeples 
were all created by masters of their art who really wanted to physically express their passion and their faith for God and because it all kind of towers and points heavenward, then you know it's not just this like really huge building. Or if you know our use of Latin, for example, in our a lot of our prayers and our rit- rituals, like I speak in English. This is, English is my second language. So Latin is another whole thing. How do I connect to that Latin prayer if I don't understand what it is and where it came from and things like that? Yeah, there's definitely a gap there of like including us in the conversation of why we do these things. And maybe it's it's in the way that we're catechized or taught at an early age. Maybe it's something that should be more part of our life. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Is there anything else that you thought of when we were talking that you wanted to mention? Anything that sort of crossed your mind that we didn't get to? I think about like engaging in conversation with people outside of the Catholic Church. Maybe I just live in a bubble of Catholic community just by the nature of my job. But yeah, I haven't had too many instances where I felt like I was challenged for my faith, if that makes sense. But yeah, I I think now I'm realizing as well to engage in conversation with people that maybe are not familiar with Christianity is a really hard thing because in Christianity, we use such a different language than what other people use. Like if I were to talk about, yeah, relics or veneration, like these aren't words that you use every day. So to explain it to someone else, like this is my faith, this is me venerating a relic, it must sound so weird. (laughs) And to try to maybe reconcile that or maybe try to explain that to someone is such a challenge. Well, you did a pretty good job of explaining it to me. And I mean, I'm... (laughs) I grew up Christian, but I wouldn't say I'm Catholic. I'm definitely not Catholic. So that was great. (laughs) Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. So this interview didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted it to. I prepared some great questions and was excited to hear what Jean had to say. But I also didn't ask a lot of the hard-hitting stuff that I'm sure many of you would if you sat down with a young Catholic. How can she reconcile being part of an institution that hid the sexual abuse of children for years? How does she as a woman feel about the church's exclusion of female priests? About its strong anti-abortion stance? I realized that I shied away from topics that would make someone like me feel uncomfortable. As someone who also grew up in a church, I didn't want her to feel like I was asking her to answer for all the church's sins. I'm still learning, so thanks for being patient with me as I figure out not just my faith, but how to be a podcaster too. Keep your feedback coming as you come along on my journey with me. I'm Emma Prestwich, and thanks for listening.